Friends, let's open it in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. If you were here last week, you remember that we're starting a, a mini-series. We're talking about um, the Jesus of the resurrection. For five weeks after Easter, we want to understand with Paul what it means to know and to feel and experience the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus more deeply. We want to get to know Jesus better. And we said last week that the secret to the Christian life and the secret to Christian growth is that there are no secrets. There are no hidden gems, there are no hidden paths, there are no secret avenues and ways and means by which we know Jesus better. All of them have been made very plain to us by God. So we're going through this series, we're talking about these five things, but I hope you don't hear anything new. I hope we're not revealing new things to ourselves, I hope we're just hearing very old things, maybe in a new way to think about. We grow in our relationship with Jesus through these five well-worn paths. We're going to spend a Sunday on each. Last week was creation, today is prayer. We're going to talk about word and mission and friendship. These are God's five well-worn paths to know him better. What we all need to understand about these paths is that when we do them, they don't feel like much. I don't know people who say that their quiet time is always incredible. I don't know those kind of people who just tell me that their prayer life is off the chains, or whenever they're in creation, they taste the glory of heaven. I I just haven't met those Christians. I spent a lot of time with believers in our church, discipling believers, and if you think the person sitting next to you thinks that way or feels that way, from my perspective, they don't. Nobody says that. We don't have those kind of people here. We have people who feel like these avenues are, are very plain, They're very ordinary, they're rarely spectacular, and yet God says, keep coming, keep walking, keep praying, keep reading, keep fellowshipping with friends, keep stumbling into mission, whatever that looks like for you and your family, keep enjoying creation. This is the stuff of everyday Christianity. It never looks like much when you're in the moment, but I promise A long obedience in the same direction adds up to much in the kingdom of heaven. So we're grabbing a hold of these things and we're walking by faith that God says, this is going to make you, by one step, by one degree or another, closer into the image of his son. We take them and we do them by faith. So today we're going to talk about prayer and we're going to do that from 1 Peter chapter 1 beginning in verse 3. Hear now God's word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. 
In this rejoice, though, for now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. They do not now see him, you believe in him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray together. We're going to talk about prayer, but I pray that very simple prayer over every single person in this room that we might be among those who obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And between now and then, we would enjoy you, we would grow in you, we would begin to look like you through the times we spend in prayer with you. We ask that because you're eager to give it to us. In Jesus' name, amen. It was hard to pick a passage on prayer. We're going to talk about a very broad category of prayer, and it was hard to pick a passage that knit the resurrection to prayer, and so I chose this passage, which has the word resurrection, but as you just heard, it doesn't even have the word prayer in it, which I'm actually really self-conscious about. But when I read these verses a few weeks ago, and I especially got to verse 8, I said, this is it. This is what I want my prayer life to look like. Peter is writing to the church and he tells them in verses 3 through 7, Praise God, we have been born again because Jesus is risen from the dead. And because he's risen from the dead, we have new life in him. And we have an inheritance that he is now guarding for us until that last day. All of those are the truths, the promises that stand behind what he says in verse 8 which is a vision of a beautiful prayer life without even using the word prayer. This is what he says. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. God, would you give us that kind of prayer life? How you describe something has huge influence over how you think about something, right? Our words matter, our descriptions matter. There's power in the way that you articulate something and the way that you describe something. So let me give you an example. Um, The pastor-scholar Eugene Peterson He has very, very strong feelings about how we talk about the room that's upstairs in this building where my desk and my books are. What we call that thing, what we call that room where I spend a lot of my time has a huge amount of influence over how we perceive what it is the pastor actually does. If you call that room the pastor's office, like it's an office space and that's my office Peterson says you have acquiesced to the cultural expectation of the pastor as an administrative paper pusher who is up there balancing budgets and responding to emails. If you use the word office, you have already lost the battle of what the pastor is. 
But if you call that room with the desk and books a study, it's the pastor's study. Well, now you envision a man who has dedicated himself to prayer and the word, who emerges from that glory to go about his week unhurried and apocalyptic. How you describe what that room is has import. It affects the way you think about what a pastor does and what he's doing with all his time up in that room upstairs. Well, I wonder if the same thing could be said about getting together with other people. I think about this all the time because when you and I make an appointment and we say we're going to get together, I, for lack of a better word, call that a meeting. We're going to meet together. We're going to have a meeting And that word bores me to tears. And so Julie says, what are you up to today? And I say, I've got meetings all day. Meetings in the morning, meetings for lunch, meetings in the afternoon. That just sounds terrible. What if we started calling those things encounters? That's what I'm doing. I've got some encounters today. I'm going to come up to you after the service and say, what are you doing on Thursday morning for breakfast? Because I'd like to have an encounter. (laughs) You'd be like, whoa, let me check my calendar and my heart to see if I'm ready for an encounter. But you get the idea. The way you describe something, what word you put on the thing, it's going to influence the way you think about the thing that you're about to do. And the same is true of prayer, of course. What kind of words do you use to describe prayer? How would you articulate what it is you are going about and doing when you're quiet before the Lord, doing the thing we call prayer? There's a bunch of rich descriptions that describe prayer. I love John Piper's description of prayer in his book on missions where he says prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie. Doesn't that description immediately transport you into a very strong theme of prayer? We're in a fight, we're in a war, and prayer is our access to air support. We're in danger, and we need a wartime walkie-talkie. We had read the book, David Mathis's book, on Habits of Grace, and he describes prayer as having God's ear. That's a totally different image about prayer in which we picture our Heavenly Father stooping down and listening to us in prayer because he cares to hear from us. Two different descriptions, two radical ideas about prayer. There was a 16th century Welsh poet named George Herbert. Some of you are familiar with him. Some of you have read his poem, very short poem, entitled On Prayer. It's well worth reading. And the whole thing is nothing but metaphors for prayer. And here's some of the ones he gives. He says, prayer is the church's banquet. That's what prayer is. It's a a feast set before us. He says, prayer is God's breath in man returning. And this is one of my favorite ones, especially for those of us who've experienced this anguished prayer, this wrestling with God for something. He describes prayer as siege works against the Almighty. Have you ever used that to describe your prayer? Like God is holed up in a city and in your prayers you are bringing siege works against him to make him hear you and listen to you. All of those give us different images, different perspectives on prayer. Our descriptions matter, our words matter as to how we're describing what it is we do. Now Peter steps into this 
And he wants to give us three words, three ideas. He, he lacks the artistic metaphor ability of George Herbert. But he says, when you think about prayer, you have to be thinking about these three words when you do it. And the words are love, faith, joy. When you pray, those words should not be far behind what you think you're actually doing when you go to pray. Love, faith, joy. We're going to study each of those words just very briefly as they appear in the text. And then we're going to do a little, something a little crazy in a sermon. We're actually going to pray each word as we get to that word. We're going to talk about prayer and then we're going to pray about prayer as we move through these three words. Let's start with number one. Let's start with love. Peter sums up the post-resurrection church in a single sentence. This is how you describe who we are and what we're doing here in verse 8a when he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. That's your relationship with Jesus right now. Though you have not seen him, You love him. Prayer is is a love affair with an invisible lover. Prayer yearns for somebody that we can't see. Prayer affectionately lingers in the spiritual presence of the one who is physically absent from us right now. The audacity of that is not lost on Peter. Peter was an apostle. Peter got to see Jesus. Now he writes to a church who didn't see Jesus, who didn't see him rise from the dead, who didn't see him ascend into heaven, and he thinks that's so wild that he repeats it twice in one verse. This is crazy. You and I proclaim that we love Jesus even though, to my knowledge, Nobody in this room has actually seen him. He's here, he's present, he's with us even as we speak. He knows our hearts and minds, but physically he has ascended and he's sitting with a body next to his heavenly father at his right hand and he has chosen in this time not to physically reveal himself to us. And yet, We as the 21st century church, thousands of years removed from the time when he was here in a body and rose in a body and made himself visible, as we just said in the creed, we love him, we adore him, we desire him. That's kind of crazy. That's kind of crazy for us to do. Now, I don't have a ton of experience with online dating. I've got a lot of experience. That's not one of them. And by, by saying I don't have a ton, I mean zero. I, just, I, I haven't done it unless you count the time I set up my college roommate with a woman I found online with a very square chin and a lot of tattoos and questionable repute. So I set them up on a date. But I myself have not done that. Um, but I, I am conversant in the philosophy of online dating and when, and when you shouldn't show the profile picture, right? Isn't that a great dilemma when you think about online dating? Do you lead with the profile picture or do you lead with the description because the one will detract from the other? 
And there's the danger that if you lead with the picture, that'll be the only thing that the other person is thinking about, right? I I was just so enamored by his broad shoulders and his thick head of hair, I didn't even notice that he breeds chihuahuas in his mom's basement. Like, I didn't know that's what he did. And I hate chihuahuas, and I hate moms, and so this is not going to work. So you got to be careful about that. Jesus has actually the opposite philosophy. He's going to lead with the description first and the profile picture later. Which means we've got to learn to love with our hearts first and then with our eyes later. And there's actually something really beautiful to that delayed gratification. Because he hasn't shown himself to us yet, because we haven't seen him physically, the Bible can hold out this incredible promise to all who believe. And that is, the pure in heart shall see God. The pure in heart, they're going to see God. If Jesus has made your heart pure, if he's taken your sin from you and he's washed you white as snow, there's a promise for you, believer, that when you get to heaven, you are going to see God, the Father, the Spirit, and his Son, Jesus. You will see God. Can we pray together and thank God for this? Let's do that now. Jesus, we can't see you, You haven't shown yourself to us, and sometimes that bothers me, and sometimes that bothers us. But since you tell us in your word that you've given us everything we need for life and godliness, since you tell us that you know exactly how to give good gifts to your kids, since there is nothing that you withhold from those who love you, we can believe that it's best to learn to love you now without seeing you. I pray that you would give us this simple path of prayer to help us love you more. Let this be for us a practice of stealing small moments throughout the day to pray just because we want to spend time with you, just because we want to linger with you, just because we love you. Would prayer cease to be a duty for us and begin to be a delight to us because it's a chance to spend time with the one we love? Would you do that in us and in our prayer life? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. The first word Peter gives us is love. That should attend to our prayer life. That's what we're doing when we pray. The second word he gives us is faith. He wants us to think about the faith that comes in our prayers. And he says this in the middle of verse 8. He repeats again, Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. So it's not just radical that we love the one we can't see. It's actually radical that we believe in the one that we can't see. All of us think that our faith is very small, and we probably should, but don't sell yourself short on the amount of faith it takes to go to God 
in very simple prayer. It seems like a small thing to sit down at a meal and say, God, thank you for this food. Amen. And truly, all of us have prayed that prayer without a second thought, and our minds and hearts aren't engaged, and we probably shouldn't do that. But if you actually pray that very simple prayer that many of us pray throughout the day, every single day, as we sit down to three square meals, that's actually a radical prayer. If you're a believer in Christ, you are importing a huge amount of theology that you're banking that very prayer on. To say, dear God, thanks for the food, you need to believe that God exists. You need to believe that he's present in all places at all times, and you need to believe that he's personal, And that he's relevant to you at the same time being personal to the person across the world praying to him in a different language. We need also to believe that God has made terms of peace with us. That even though we don't deserve to come to him in prayer because of our sin, if he has taken that sin from us through his son and offered us terms of peace and Jesus now stands to mediate for us, that simple act of prayer is a gospel prayer because it says, I have free access to God. And not only do we believe that he exists and that he's present and that he's personal and that he's made terms of peace, we believe that he has a sovereign hand that is behind providing us a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Like God actually had something to do with that because Jesus gives us bread and Jesus is our bread. All of that is being imported into the prayer for a Christian Dear God, thank you for this food. That's marvelous. A friend of mine was telling me that they brought somebody to the Good Friday service who wasn't a believer, and then they went out for pizza at Pizza Hut afterwards. And they had this really strange interaction with somebody who came up to the table and struck up a conversation and then ended up paying for their pizza and then left. And the friend was thinking that was odd, but the unbelieving friend who was there, who had just been to the Good Friday service and then was at Pizza Hut and had her pizza paid for, said, oh my goodness, Jesus did this. Jesus paid for our pizza. This is incredible. She said, I bet other people that were at the Good Friday service are also getting free stuff in Columbia, (laughs) which I hope was true. Please tell me if that happened. Jesus did this. She has more faith than we do. This meal that I'm about to enjoy, Jesus did this. This isn't the outcome of my hands or my work or my pulling myself up by my bootstraps. Jesus tends to me and he cares for me. And he tells us in the Lord's Prayer, pray for this our daily bread. And then lo and behold, he provides it. Jesus is the one who does this. All that to say, when it comes to faith and prayer... Everyone sees the glass as half empty, right? All of us see the ways in which we need to grow in our faith, trust God more for what he does. But this morning, I just want you to hear from the Apostle Peter, who got to see Jesus and experience Jesus, and then he thinks about you, who never got to see him. If you pray at all, and you believe that God hears you, that's actually a really beautiful prayer. That's a tremendous amount of faith to do that. And Peter says, 
That simple act is honoring to God because you believe him. That's true of you, fellow Christian. That's true in your prayer. So let's turn now and praise God for that gift in prayer. Jesus, we want you to grow our faith. We know it's small. We know that it's something less than a mustard seed. If that's all it takes to move mountains, that whatever that is, I have less than that. But this morning, I hope you give us eyes to see the faith that you've already given us. You've already given us the gift of faith. And just the fact that we pray, just the fact that we've paused now to pray, is something special and beautiful. If the world was here watching and they saw us speaking to the rafters, they might laugh at us. But we're trusting in a radical way that you're here, that you're present, that you listen to us and you want to hear from us. And that's a gift of faith that you've planted deep in our souls. And we praise you for it. Grow our faith in prayer, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we talked about love. We talked about faith. Now we're going to talk about third and finally, the word joy. And that happens at the end of verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And please hear this line, because this is incredible. And rejoice. This is what we do. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Stop right there. Hold your freaking horses. This is what the Jesus of Easter wants to give us. If you don't have this, or don't know if you have this, this is like what Jesus in his resurrection is applying that resurrection power to bear in your heart and your life. Joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's the gift that Jesus has won in Easter. He's not done with us until we can rejoice from the core of our being. We're going to walk out from here and we're going to bump into a friend and they're going to ask us very politely, how was church? And we know the routine. We say the music was good and we say the preaching was okay and we say the coffee was definitely on point, you know, at CPC. Um, Jesus is fishing for something a little bit differently in this passage. He's kind of fishing for an answer that says, I don't know how to describe this to you, but when I get shoulder to shoulder with God's family and I sing and I confess my sins and I receive his forgiveness and I get to hear from his word and seek to apply it with other people, I, I feel this twinge of joy that I can't even put words on, I can't even express it to you because human language falls short of it. And that joy is filled with this kind of, of glory and majesty that I only hope to find in heaven. How about that for a description to your friend about how Sunday morning went? Jonathan Edwards wrote an incredible book Religious affections. Some of you have labored through the first few pages, and I commend you. But he famously said, 
the things of religion take hold of people's souls no further than they affect them. The things of religion take hold of people's souls no further than they affect them. In other words, your theology is only as strong as your joy. That's how strong your theology is. Your mind is actually hamstrung by your heart. In other words, don't just tell me that you believe in the creed from 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus is risen from the dead. Show me. Show me that you are walking side by side with the risen Jesus. Don't just tell me that you love Jesus. Show me that you want to steal moments throughout the day with Jesus in prayer. Don't just talk to me about the happiness that Christians can have in this new life in Christ. Show me the celebration you have with friends that Jesus is risen and everything is new. Your theology is only as strong as your joy and this is the joy that Jesus gives us. Let's pray together. Jesus, you are our joy. You are our highest and our brightest thought. You satisfy our soul with good things. We want one day in your courts rather than a thousand days anywhere else. When we speak to you like we're speaking to you now, we taste the glory of heaven. We dwell with the hope of the nations. You give us light and glad hearts. We praise you that you are the Jesus of joy and we want to experience that more and more in your presence through prayer, which you are eager to do for us. In Jesus' name, amen.